Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. Thank you for listening to Season 7, 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. I'm your host, Neil Mackay. For those of you that listen to the podcast regularly, you'll know that Adrian and I have been in Vietnam now since 2016, so we know how hard it can be to find English entertainment here and meet new friends. Through the podcast and our events, we're building a community of like-minded people so you can have fun, connect with others, and discover more of Vietnam. Become a member of the 7 Million Bikes community and you'll get free tickets to our events, free 7 Million Bikes face masks, episodes a day early, behind-the-scenes content and invites to special events for community members. If you join the community before the end of September and live in Vietnam, you'll get a free 7 Million Bikes face mask sent to you straight away. The link is in the show description, so check it out and join today. Thank you so much to our existing community members. We look forward to seeing you again soon. This season, we've gifted sponsorship of a Vietnam podcast to two amazing charities close to our hearts, the Blue Dragon Children's Foundation in the North and Saigon Children's Charity in the South. Please check out the links in the description to learn more about these amazing organisations and donate if you can. Don't forget to follow 7 Million Bikes on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and I cannot believe I'm saying this, even TikTok now. Enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Bắc, 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 bắc
Thank you so much for joining us on uh, the first live podcast that we've done in over two years of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. I'm excited to introduce my guest today. So he founded a creative agency back in 2002. Then he moved to Saigon in 2012 to set up and to help grow the agency. Then in 2014, he took over a co-working space called the Start Center, which grew into a, a, a thriving digital community until, of course, then COVID hit and changed everything. And so now he's pivoted, he's changed tack, and he's developed a course during the first lockdown to help entrepreneurs get more clients and automate their sales. So I'm excited to introduce my guest today is Marcel Ganieri. Thanks for having me. How's it going? Doing great. Awesome. That's that's a lie. No one's doing great and awesome. No, I'm right loving. Now. I'm loving this lockdown. I'm sorry. <laughs> is that the truth? Is that right? Is that the truth? Yes, I'm loving this lockdown. Why I mean, is that? I feel bad for so many people that are struggling right now. But actually, for me, I, that, you know, I told myself it's the occasion, the opportunity to really change everything in my life and just do what I always wanted to do. I had plenty of time. I had everything I needed, good internet, the fridge full. So I could focus on developing new stuff, work on my online course. And so no excuse to procrastinate now. Nice. I'm trying to look into your eyes and be like, do you really mean that? Are you just telling us that? Do you really mean that? <laughs> no, it's true. So one of the things that when we were talking previously, I was very jealous that you had a swimming pool. <laughs> yeah. And then you told me what happened to your swimming pool, if you want to share with people. And then I was like, oh, well, I'm not so jealous anymore. True. Yeah. So last year for the first lockdown, we had the pool working, but somehow this year it turned more into a frog pond <laughs> because we don't have anyone to come and clean up. So I think it's lack of chlorine and now we have lots of frogs in it. So it's more like a green pond. <laughs> so not so nice. So I don't have a pool, unfortunately. I was so jealous. I was like, what? You have a pool? And then you're like, no, it's, it's not that exciting. No. But I do have a nice garden. So that helps to be outside. Yeah, yeah that's that. I do. I'm very jealous of that. We have a very tiny, tiny balcony. Last week, I tried to lie out on it. It's so small. Like I, I can barely even fit lying down with my legs up. I don't I did it for like two minutes. I was like, this is not comfortable at all. So I'm very jealous that if you have a, a garden and an outside. Now, originally when we first met, I thought you were from France. Uh, I said I was talking to a friend and I was like, oh, you know that guy, Martial, the French guy? And he's like, I'm pretty sure he's Swiss. And I was like, oh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Maybe then. So you're from Switzerland, and on the Vietnam podcast, we've actually had a couple of Swiss guests on the show. They were Swiss Vietnamese, though, and I assume then you have a bit of a Vietnamese population in Switzerland then? I didn't know any Vietnamese before, I mean, in Switzerland before getting here, except one Vietnamese shop just uh, across from my office. So that was very convenient to buy Asian produce. What about, did they sell like pho and all of this stuff, or...? Yeah, they sell like all like Asian produce, mostly like imported from Thailand. And so I guess there is a bit of an Asian community buying from that shop. And uh, so the owner is Vietnamese and she would, she would give me some alternative to how, how to cook some Vietnamese dishes. That was very interesting. Nice. Well, one of the things we talked about with our uh, Nimai 
and it was about how the the stereotype of Switzerland is, uh, you know, cuckoo clocks and chocolate and uh, mountains. Banks. And banks and and, uh, corrupt bankers, I think, was what we talked about. (laughs) But the reality is a bit different. And and what they were describing to me was it is quite multicultural as well, which I think from, from the outside, well, you are obviously a white guy. You just expect that most Swiss people would look like you. But uh, in the reality, it, it is different, right? Yeah, so we have four different linguistic regions. And uh, we have also 20% of immigrants. Most of them are quite very well integrated into society. Some Africans, a lot of Eastern Europeans. We have a, a lot of a uh, big expat community too, English and Americans. In what, the is French, the biggest, yes. what is the biggest miss, the biggest stereotype about Switzerland that isn't true? Oh, I have to think about this one. One time someone told me that, oh, you don't have space. You, you, you guys don't play football because there's not enough space for a, a football court, you know, because we only have mountains, so you cannot play football. And I laughed when I heard that. <laughs> Switzerland used to have a pretty good football team when I was growing up. I don't know about these days. No, they've never been that good. They were all right. Like they, they got to the 94 World Cup, I think, right? Yeah, I don't recall. <laughs> so for everyone that's watching this live, you know, so this is the difference because all this uh, shit talk that I can just edit out of the, the normal podcast and you don't get to hear all of this, but this is the benefit of the live podcast. You get to just hear me talking absolute shit. And so welcome. I hope you're enjoying it. One of the things about Switzerland, that did you see the Jordan Klepper video? No, not Jordan Klepper, but it was from the Daily Show about the gun culture in Switzerland. Yes, I saw that. Yes, yeah. That for me was shocking because Switzerland has like, you know, really high gun ownership, like 97% or something crazy, but almost zero deaths from from guns. So did you use a gun growing up and whatnot? Are you trained <laughs> to use a gun? Growing up, no. But I did the army. You know, it's mandatory for us. So I did have a gun. What I did is you have the choice to return it or to keep it. Of course, you need a license. You need everything to go with. So I decided not to keep it. I don't have any use for it. And uh, so usually most people have their gun in their basement, you know, in their cellar or in a locked um, locker. Mm-hmm. But now actually they, the army can keep it for you just to avoid a bit of, you know, that hassle. Because yeah, when we were talking, I think it was me, and I was saying about this gun ownership, and she was not too aware of it. She's like, well, I didn't know this. And then she was like, oh, wait, that makes sense. There used to always be soldiers on the on the like public transport with guns and things like that. <laughs> so no, usually people don't carry it around. They don't, they, they can't. The only time you can take it out of the house is when you go to the uh, shooting range to rehearse. Every year you have to rehearse shooting. You know, so in an event of a war, you're ready. You know, you have your weapon, you have your your seared box of ammunition, and you're ready to go to war. The, the funny fact is that Switzerland never been in a war. So, you know. Yeah, I was about to say, who's getting into war with Switzerland? <laughs> Just in case Germany wants to invade. So this, uh, is, this, uh, I'm not, this is an ignorant question. I actually don't know the answer to this. Why is Switzerland always considered neutral? Is that actually true? Are they actually neutral? And why why do they have this kind of status as a, a neutral country? They are neutral. 
And I think the, the way they represent that is Switzerland is the headquarter of the UN and they have about 400 NGOs in Geneva. Uh, it's the capital of diplomacy, as, is, as they say. And so they really want to play on that. So one thing I learned as a kid is that we're not allowed to sell weapons to one part, one part of the conflict, one side of the conflict, if there's a war between two countries. We can only sell to both or none. <laughs> and this is how we are neutral. <laughs> right. Okay, so this is what I learned as a kid and that's yeah. as far as I know about neutrality. But does Switzerland manufacture many weapons? Yes, a lot. That's really? A good thing. Yes, yes. We're very good at manufacturing weapons. Wait, what? Okay, this is something, <laughs> this is new information. I, I, okay, so I kind of have the mindset as well that Switzerland is very small and flanked by mountains. I don't think it's small enough that you don't have a soccer field. I can imagine there's plenty of room for a soccer field. But I know you've got a massive pharmaceutical industry. I would yeah. never have imagined having a... Where did this come from? So you, you have a massive manufacturing industry, but you're neutral, so you sell weapons to both sides. Yeah, so I'm not sure about this right now. This was something we were always <laughs> joking about as a kid, when I was a kid. But we, we are neutral. We cannot support one side of a conflict we have to support everyone i think the only the only time we were involved was with the you know the war in the eastern europe in yugoslavia so we did have some neutral force there just to help with the uh, rescue but that was our army center so that's the only time we had our army out of the country right so that was my next question so you have mil mandatory military training yes but is that mostly to help out within your own country in terms of like if there's a natural disaster or whatnot or if you're invaded I guess like what is that would that be the purpose for having a, a so yes yeah, so that that's what they sell us so we keep paying for it uh, <laughs> because otherwise the army is totally useless I would say so it's mostly to help in terms of natural disasters and uh, even in terms of like social events if there's like a big competition or national events, the army would help in to, for logistics and parking and all that stuff, you know? <laughs> the so, army helps with parking? Yeah. <laughs> actually, That's worse than the Vietnamese military helping with shopping? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And actually, a great thing I did in the army, because actually I never practiced what I learned during the army, because my, my, um, my company was deemed obsolete right after I finished my training. I was uh, assigned to a military hospital. And so what they called me for was to uh, help during the Paralympics. So we, we held a Paralympics competition and we had to help them to set up the, key, the ski slopes You know, and I had to carry the handicapped people, athletes, into the uh, the cable car. So that's what I did. But it's, it's very, great. It's, it's very great. noble. It's a good thing. It's a great experience. I love yeah. it. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm still laughing so much that you can either support none or both. It's like two guys getting into a fist fight at the pub and then someone coming up and breaking up and being like, guys, guys, just leave it. Don't fight. But look, if you are going to fight each other, here's a baseball bat each. <laughs> Yeah, or I think we can sell, but only uh, when the country is not in conflict. Something like that. You have this to look is, it up. This is so twisted. So we don't support anyone, but we do. We do manufacture arms. 
That's brilliant. Yeah. And then, so you do, I know I worked for a, a cancer research institute in uh, New Zealand and the, the director of that had worked for, what's the big medical facility in Switzerland? Now my, my mind is blanking. Well, you have so many, right? Yeah, you mean? Like a research institute, uh, a medical Oh, the CERN, the CERN? Not CERN, like more medic, because that's more like a physics, right? Like, Yeah, physics, yeah. What's the uh, medical research institute? Most uh, universities have a research. Hospitals have a, like a university department mm. on the hospital. There's like four of them. I'm not sure which one. I forgot you have CERN as well. Does that, is that unnerving to have some massive experimental physics loop running? How big is it, like running under your country? Yeah, I would be uh, scared of the Switzerland turning into a black hole. But <laughs> <laughs> so it's right under Geneva. And it, it's... The potential of diplomacy has yeah, a potential right. black hole under it. <laughs> Fantastic. And it, it's also... It's part of it is under France as well, so it's on the border of Switzerland, of Geneva and France, and it's right under the airport as well. You know, so it's <laughs> quite interesting. I love this always. It's under France as well because if if it gets fucked up for us, we're gonna fuck up France at the same time too. Well, I think it's a European it's a European research center, so France is also quite involved in the in the process. So, how many people live in Switzerland? We have like 8.5 million people. How many people? What's the population yeah, of Switzerland? So 8.5 million, 20%, like 2 million something of immigrants. So only like Swiss million Swiss people. Oh, wow. And we have a German part, German-speaking part, 60%. A French-speaking part, 35%. And we have a Italian-speaking part, 3% or something like that. And we have a tiny little part that speaks like an old forgotten Latin. So, oh, no way. Yeah. Well, I guess young people, they just learn the German, which is like the main language in that region. So I didn't realize Switzerland was so big, actually. Scotland's just about 5 million. I, I thought Switzerland was even smaller, so 8 million. But you guys punch above your weight with your your CERN and your pharmaceuticals and your manufacturing and then your cuckoo clocks as well. So where, <laughs> where does that come from? Is that, do you, do, did you, were you guys the inventors of cuckoo clocks? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about inventing it, but actually the, yeah, the, the watch do industry. Do you have one? I don't have a cuckoo clock. The watch industry is quite big. It's a bit of our pride as well. So actually all this is like condensed into like 30% of the landscape because 70% is mountain and then 30% is, is the, you know, the countryside, the, the flat land where we can build cities and, and manufacturing. Sweet. All right. Nice. Okay. We'll move on from Switzerland. I'm, I'm doing Switzerland to death, but I do, find, I do find this super funny and super interesting. And again, guys, I hope you're enjoying watching this live because this is probably all the stuff that like would never make it to the final podcast if we did a, a, record, <laughs> did a recording. So you moved to uh, Vietnam, you said 2012. Oh no, you started your... 2012, you moved to Vietnam, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what then, why did you choose Vietnam? How did you end up here? Yeah, so I first started with Thailand, Bangkok. I had a designer there working for my agency. And uh, we wanted to develop Asia because I think it was relevant, you know, to be in Asia, especially after the 2009 economic crisis where I lost so many clients. 
And uh, so being in Asia was a thing. And then I researched a few countries and Vietnam was the only one that offered me uh, 100% ownership of my company, offered me a, a resident card and uh, I could do everything with just the lawyer. So it was so convenient. I said, let's do it. And that's not, that's changed now, right? That's not, not possible, is it? it it's no, it, it, it's still possible. So that was, I think it was the first year, 2012, where you could do it for IT. So I, re, I registered an IT company and that was the first year you could do that. So I was one of the first. Before you needed a Vietnamese partner. You can do that as a restaurant owner as well. You can do that in a few industries, but it's quite limited, yes. The, the last, I because I, I looked into this and I, I heard that, because obviously, you know, there's been a massive change in visa laws and we can, I call it the great expat exodus as so many people have had to leave Vietnam because of those changes. And I, I didn't look into it for myself, but I, I know other people that looked into it. As far as I know, the, the law right now, to if you own a business, to be able to get a resident card, you need to have a minimum investment of $3 billion, which is about $130,000. So yeah, that that changed. Before it yeah. was a lot easier. So they were asking me like fifty thousand dollar, you know, to set up shop. And I said like to make websites, it's too much. Can we do with thirty? I said yeah, sure. <laughs> so you know, it worked. Everything yeah, is negotiable. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so because we set up seven million bikes as a, a business this year, and they kind of said, oh, you need to have X amount of money in the bank. And I was like, well, can we put this amount of money in? They're like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So did Vietnam 2012, I ask this question a lot on the podcast. We have people who have been in, on the show on, from various times. Like I think the, the guest who'd been here the earliest was Edith Gerardo, who first, come, first came to Vietnam 40 years ago. And then people from varying like to 10, 20, 30. 2012, tell people here that are listening, I think from, I know most of the, some of the people here anyway, and some are Vietnamese, so they obviously know what it was like. But for you, what was Vietnam like in 2012? Because I know from me arriving in 2006, it was so different. Yes, it was very different indeed. It was already bustling, but I think it's even worse now. For the worse and the better. So traffic was kind of fun back then. I loved it. So it was hectic, but actually you could still cross the road without worrying too much. Now in some places, it's, it's quite dodgy. So it was less polluted. Uh, it was nicer in terms of streets, less cars, a lot less cars. So that was struck me most. There was not many options in terms of like Western food, Western restaurants and all the bars we have now. So Bouvian was pretty lame. <laughs> <laughs> Boivien was better. So when we first arrived, like, you know, everyone warned us not to go to Boivien, but we went, we went mostly because we were studying at literally at the end of Boivien. So it just made sense to go there. But it was still quite fun. It was still local. It wasn't so crazy. It was crazy, but not as crazy, crazy as it is now. And over the last year or so, Adrian and I have just driven down there just to see what it's like. Maybe if we're in the neighborhood and we're on the bike, we're like, let's just drive down Boivien to see what it's like. And it's mental now. True. It's I, I think the what people expected to happen a few years ago was it just became super like uh, I don't know what to use the word, like Americanized or developed or commercialized, maybe is the word I'm looking for. Cause it was already like a Starbucks had opened. There was um 
Burger King had opened and a few other kind of like those kind of stores. And I think at the time, what we talked about and others, I think was that it was going to end up becoming just super commercialized, you know, like another kind of one of all these corporations and stuff. But it's gone in a completely different direction. I don't know when the last time you went down or anyone who's listening, when was the last time you went to Boy Vienne? It's now just like a competition to see which bar can be the most obnoxious, the loudest. There's just, it, there was always kind of like seemed to be quite a lot of aggression and fights, but I, from what I could see online anyway, it, that even seemed to increase as well. So I think it's probably changed now again during the pandemic, but it, it's almost as well. It went from being a super tourist spot to now becoming more for the locals almost from what I can see. Yes, definitely. Before the lockdown, it started looking very much like Kosan Road in Bangkok. So I thought it was getting towards that direction. Yeah. I, I, when we were there, when if everyone can remember, when traveling was al allowed, my aunt had visited and we went, we were around the Boy Vien region and we were walking down. And of course, she, this, she walks by the guy in the corner and he's like, Madame, Madame, marijuana, marijuana, <laughs> cocaine, cocaine. And my aunt, she's like in her 60s or something. She's like, what did he just ask me? And he's like, yeah, so if you wanted marijuana or cocaine, she's like, what? I was like, yeah, welcome. Welcome to Boy Vien. That's it. But what you said about the cars as well. So, I mean, so again, for me coming 2016, there was very few cars on the road, but that like has exponentially increased. So 2012, there must have been very few cars on the road back then. Sure, only taxis most of the time. Yeah. Uh, maybe corporate cars or like those um, seven-seaters that you could rent for the day. And then that was it, right? Mm -hmm. And then I... I So this was a question I asked uh, a couple of seasons ago was, would you rather live in Vietnam now or 20 years ago? What would you say? That's a very good question. I would say now, just because now you have access to a lot more food and, com you know, comfort food and wine. And I was starting to miss those cheese and, and bread. And now we have all this. So, of course, the experience would have been more authentic maybe 20 years ago, but, but now I'm loving it too. Yeah, and well, do you know what? I realized as I, I was, as I was asking that question throughout the season, it's one of these like quite, I kind of not regret asking the question, but it's such a Western-centric point of view because I think it was a Vietnamese guest pointed out to me. He's like, yeah, well, like 20 years ago, the country was poorer. And I think as a Westerner, we can romanticize that like, oh, it would have been so amazing to have been here 20 years ago. It would have been more authentic and simpler and, and blah, 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 blah. But we're just looking at it from our point of view, which is the only point of view you can really have until you kind of think of others. But your original point of view is your own point of view. So exactly like you said, now we're like, oh, there's more food and things like this. But I think, and it'd be interesting to hear from some of the Vietnamese people that are here after, afterwards, What did they think of that question? Because for them, 20 years ago, they'd probably be like, why would we want to be 20 years ago? Like the country was poorer. We didn't have as many options. Now, like things are so much better. So I, I do, it is a very uh, Western-centric question. And I, I think, yeah, I even see other people talk about, I, I've said it before, I'd love to have gone to Cambodia 20 years ago or I'd have loved to have been in Vietnam 20 years ago. But I think we are easily romanticizing the fact that like, oh yeah, it would have been such a nice experience for us because then we get to leave and go back to our cozy Western existence. But um, for the people that are living that experience, it's not so nice. So even though I do, I think the question is an interesting 
question to ask. I, I do have that caveat to add to it. Both Saigon Children's Charity and Blue Dragon have emergency COVID appeals. The outbreak of the Delta variant is wreaking havoc on vulnerable communities across Vietnam. Families are struggling to survive. They need your help, especially impoverished children in lockdown areas. You can sponsor a COVID backpack now with Saigon Children's Charity containing food staples, hygiene necessities, books and games to a child in COVID-affected areas in Vietnam so that they know they are taken care of physically and mentally. Or in the north, you can donate an emergency food pack through Blue Dragon. It contains fruit and vegetables, rice and staples to keep children and families going. Food will be bought locally and will include a mix of fresh food and longer-lasting items. For families who are hard to reach, your donation will provide a cash grant to buy food at the local market. The links to donate are in the description, and if you're in a position to, please donate whatever you can. Thanks. Question to ask, I do have that caveat to add to it. I think that's a very good point, if I may. I like now that young people can open shops like coffee shops and businesses and design shops. And that's something we could not see when I first arrived here. And now you, you see those young people building businesses and I love that. And I think this is great for them. So exactly, I would not want them to go back 20 years ago. But actually, instead of 20 years ago, I would say maybe before the 70s, I would love to go at that time to see how it was before, the, before 75. Yeah, that, that's a whole different story, right? Because I've heard stories about how there was like a thriving music scene and, and Leigh, who's here on the call, and we used to work together and, and we we're good friends. And she's told me stories about her family from back then and the things I've heard from back in pre-1975. That would be a, a kind of cool time to... And I know it's quite sad as well because Vietnam, from my understanding, which is a very limited understanding of Saigon at least, lost a lot of that culture, lost a lot of that music culture and art scene post-1975, but I guess it's exciting to see it's it's starting to come back. And that's exciting what you're saying about the opportunities for young people. You know, things like coffee shops every day, there's a, well, before this lockdown, but every day there was like a new coffee shop opening and you would go in and it would be clearly owned by a young Vietnamese person. Yeah, true. So how has that changed? So tell us about then your business. 2012, you came here, you started a business. You don't need to go into too much of, of the direct challenges that, that you faced as a, a business owner in Vietnam, because I'm sure that's a very loaded question. But some of, the, some of the challenges of starting a business in Vietnam and the differences that you've seen during that time, which you've touched on. Yeah, so I think the biggest challenge was the you know, staff recruitment. Finding the right people, trying to be understood and understand them was a big, big challenge for me. I lost so many staff for the first two years. It was very hard to retain because I think I was too small and I was like the, the white guy trying to build a business here. So that was a, a no-go for most Vietnamese that wanted a stable job in a big corporation, a big name, just to show their friends they work at that big company. So they had little trust in, in startups back then. And I think that changed too, that evolved for the last 10 years. And well, would you say that there's more and more young Vietnamese people at the, the forefront of those startups, like doing their own startups? Yeah, so the startups are more popular. Back then, it was not really a thing. Their family would dictate what they do and where they work. So 
starting a, a new business or a startup was not stable enough, you know, to sustain the family. So usually the parents would say no, or they would do that without telling their parents. I had one, one designer and one day he didn't come to work. It's like, where are you? It's like, oh, my parents doesn't want, doesn't want me to go to work. She wants me back in school. <laughs> it's like, I didn't know you were still in school. So now I think that it's a bit more widespread and a lot of people are trying to build businesses, but mostly on the side, it's like side hustles. But as soon as they make money, they quit their job and they go full on, which is great, actually. I really love that. Well, I, I'm just trying to remember. I can't, I can't remember at the moment who it was, but I just heard someone say just last week, the v, uh, Saigon is one of the greatest places right now for, for startups and entrepreneurship. And so would you agree with that? And if so, why is that? Yes, I do agree. Vietnam is number three on the map in Southeast Asia regarding the startup ecosystem. Number one being Singapore, uh, sorry, Indonesia, and second, Singapore. Vietnam is third, and Vietnam is very attractive for startups. The main reason is that it's a big market that is untapped in uh, a lot of different industries. So a lot of Singaporeans or, or Asians wants to come to Vietnam to to launch a business in the market. So I have a really stupid question for you, okay? But I, I like asking stupid questions, even though it makes me look stupid. What is a startup? I don't think it's a stupid question. <laughs> Good, okay, thank you. <laughs> and I, I, actually, I'm asking it genuinely because it's one of these phrases or terms that's thrown about. And I, I like, oh, yeah, yeah, a startup. And then I think, I, I don't actually really know what it is. I think that's a good question. And that reminds me of a story back in the days. I used to be invited to startup competition where I would mentor or coach the applicants to the competition. And I, I met a young guy and, uh, and he told me, oh, I'm building a startup too. And I said, oh, what is it? I'm opening a coffee shop. <laughs> and I laughed, you know. <laughs> so a startup is actually a a business idea that wants to disrupt an industry or a market and that wants to accelerate super fast. The idea is to raise money and then to investors want to exit after a few years or maybe 10 years and cash big money. So they're looking for business idea that disrupts markets, just like Uber did or Airbnb did. And that that improve lives like 10 times. You know, they want a 10x difference disruption. Okay, so that is what I, what I thought of a startup. Was Uber was the first thing that come, came to mind? But I was thinking what you said there. So why is that? I was kind of thinking like, why is a coffee shop not a startup? Like what's the difference between just starting a business? It's not all businesses a startup. So now that you've cleared up what a startup is, which is what I imagined it to be, why are they so common? Is that is it, and is it just greed that people? Because you say like the ten x, they want to scale up quickly. They want investment. Is it just like a, is it just like a get rich quick scheme almost? You know, like a twenty first century get rich quick scheme. If I start up, everyone wants a disruptive technology, right? That's the buzzword, right? We're going to do a disruptive technology, um, and then we're going to get investment. Then we're going to be the next Uber. But that is one of these things that probably only happens to like 1% or 0.1%. So, sorry, I asked about five questions in the one th thing there, but you can comment on that. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's a bit of different things. 
everyone has a different motivation when they start a startup. Some of them is the gold rush, you know, it's the new gold rush. They're trying to get big or to get famous or to make big money. Others, they just like, they're passionate about what they do. And I think most entrepreneurs that are successful, they're just passionate. They, they want to solve a problem. They, they, have, they know how to apply technology to solve a physical problem we have or a, a problem we have in one industry. And that's what they do. They just love doing that. And that's very remarkable. So you mentioned that, that Saigon is a, a big place for startups because it's kind of untouched and uh, that would make sense. I guess. So would it then, for people doing startups here, in my mind immediately, would it not then just to be replicate what is done in other countries? So my example would be Uber or Grab or, or and again, it blows my mind that in the time I've been here, when we first arrived 2016, ride-hailing apps didn't exist here. Like you, we still got Zayoms. There was still, I never really see a guy on the street trying to sell you his motorbike services, but that was normal. And again, that was part of the charm of Vietnam. And that almost ties into that romanticism of like, oh, it was so cute when you could just get a Zayom on the street. But like, yeah, how much was the guy making? Now a guy's on grab and he's just literally just making money all day, every day. And I don't know the economics of that. Maybe he's making less money on grab and he made more money as a private Zayom. I don't know. So maybe what I just said there is not true. But yeah, I kind of forgot my point now. Yes, I... There are some startups trying to replicate uh, a model we have in the US or in Europe. Lazada was one, for example, trying to replicate Amazon. Others are trying new models, new things, because it's cheap to fail. And I think that's very important. Vietnam is cheap to fail. It's easy to find motivated people, build a team, test things. You can either test abroad online or you can test here. And if it works, you can scale in Southeast Asia. So you, you say it's cheaper, okay? And I, I I see this in the restaurant industry as well, that a lot of restaurants come and go in my time here. They open up quickly, then they, they disappear overnight almost. And you're kind of like, oh, well, it's so cheap here. But things still cost here. Like it, So you say it's cheap, but it still costs tens of thousands of dollars, right? So it, it means that you still, it's not like any old person with no money can just come in and be like, well, I'm going to do this and that. You still need to have backing, right? It's just that it's going to cost you less than it would somewhere else. Is that what it means? Yes, that's correct. It's true that I didn't find it that cheap either, especially when you see all the costs and everything you need to run, like a lot of bureaucracy to run your business. But, you know, for Singaporeans, for Japanese, for Koreans I worked with, for them, it's still very cheap. Mm. So we're talking about people that are already have a bit of financial backing and coming in. But are you seeing, so you're talking about young Vietnamese people becoming entrepreneurs. So are they, do they have financial backing behind them or they are able to start kind of from the ground up? Some do. I would say most of them, they just bootstrap with nothing. They just work from, from their home or from coffee shop. They're, they cannot even afford a co-working space most of the time. So... You know, when, I, when people ask me like, uh, oh, I want to see startups in your co-working space, like go to coffee shops, you'll see startups. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true, right? Yeah, you're always seeing people like I go to a coffee shop, they're coding or doing something on the, and it's way cheaper than that. That's why you see people buy like a 20,000 don coffee and they're there for four hours, right? On the Wi-Fi using the electricity. Exactly. You're monitoring Bitcoins, you know, you see that a lot too. 
Um, oh, is that a thing as well? So I, you, I see a lot of uh, VietQ coming back to, to build a business here. That's a good thing too. And is that one of your kind of clientele base? Some of them, yes. More expats, but, but VietQ, Vietnamese from abroad. They're coming back to the country and, and building a new business. Yeah, and the guest, the episode that just came out on the, the podcast literally today, she's she's Vietnamese and she's a entrepreneur. She runs English language schools and uh, really interesting. So one of her target audiences is Viet Q's returning to Vietnam and but teaching them Vietnamese. And because, again, this is something we've touched on on the podcast and a couple of episodes before, is that it's really fascinating to me. So... People who have left Vietnam around 1975 or the preceding years moved to the US, settled down, or, or any country, even Switzerland, settled down. It's fascinating that the language got frozen in time because they left. So they speak fluent Vietnamese, but it never developed past that. So there's certain words that have changed. So I know, for example, airport is one of them. And we can clarify with some of the Vietnamese that are listening afterwards. But I know the airport was one of the words that is now just a different word than it used to be. And so the, the language that they learn as like first generation immigrants in another country, the Vietnamese that they learn from their parents, they then come back to Vietnam to reconnect with their roots and they speak a different version of Vietnamese. So she actually, part of her school is to teach modern Vietnamese to these returning VQs, which I think is, a, is really cool. Yeah, it, it's true that you can tell uh, a VQ versus a Vietnamese when they speak Vietnamese. And there's, they're often like looked down from, from, the, from Vietnamese, from locals. And that's what I've heard as well, yeah. So we'll, we'll fast forward now but we'll also go back to what you said at the beginning of the podcast. You said you're doing great during uh, lockdown, which is good to hear, which is good to hear. And, and like you said as well, you've got some perspective and I'm the same. I, my lockdown has not been the worst for me. It's not much, it's not fun. It's not normal life, but uh, I I'm feel very, very lucky for what I do have. But so explain to us then. So tell us a little bit about you. You opened up your business, came 2012. You had a co-working space, as I mentioned at the beginning. Tell us kind of like what, how, how did that develop just kind of pre-lockdown and post-lockdown? So you don't need to go back too far, but then how did it develop like early 2021 to then where you are now? Yeah, so the big change happened during the first lockdown, March 2020, where most uh, digital nomads left the country. They got scared and they just returned to their country. And so ever since we reopened, it was never the same. There's not enough foreigners in the country to really build a community of digital nomads. So we're trying, we were trying to cater to locals, trying to cater to expats here. Not that easy. And um, the second lockdown hit in late May this year. And I said, okay, this time it's time to pivot. It's time to really focus online because we never know what's going to happen in the future. We cannot just expect the country to reopen anymore. So that was a big shift, mindset shift, I would say. So I did not, the first lockdown was more of a holiday, but this time it's like, no, now I'm going to work. I'm going to find clients. I'm going to pivot. And I did a first project in the first week of the lockdown for a Swiss startup. 
as a consultant. So that was a great first project. And then I run a few of my storytelling workshop for some businesses, both in Vietnam and abroad. And I developed my course. I have more clients now because it's word of mouth. You know, the first clients at the beginning of lockdown are happy. So now they're referring me more clients. And so I'm making more money during this lockdown than I did in the, the, the whole last year, you know. So now I see a brighter future online, which I was quite reluctant in the past because for a community, I like the, you know, I like meeting people in person. I like physical events. But now I think we have to go online. And if we can, we're going to do offline events. Now, that's great to hear. And you, <laughs> it's one of these things when you're put under a certain amount of pressure, like good things can happen, right? And I know maybe some people even listening right now might be like, oh, you're making more money now. Like, but that, that's obviously not a bad thing. And throughout, I know throughout history, if you go back to like the Great Depression in the, was it 1918? Maybe I got my dates wrong there, but the Great Depression in the US, even the 2008 financial crisis, even the world wars, there's always winners and losers, right? There's always people that come out of it stronger and better. And, and I do think it's partly... For some companies, it's it's maybe luck being in the right position at the right time, but also like having that determination to be like, okay, well, this is the hand I've been dealt. This is how I'm going to deal with it. And then making the best of that situation. I know even for myself with this lockdown for 7 million bikes, I mean, we do events. <laughs> we put on like comedy shows and quiz nights and it was like, okay, they all stopped. And we thought it would only be for a month and then we'd be back to normal. And luckily we just did one quiz night I, I literally thought it would just be one quiz night and then we'd be back to normal. I was like, I'll do it online. And now we've done like 14 of them. We have a regular community of people that come and enjoy it and get value from it and enjoy seeing other people. I'm now being hired by other, working with other businesses to do quiz nights and events for them all online. And and I do think it just comes from when you, it's like, I, I know it's such a cheesy analogy, but like, you know, you put some pressure on carbon and then it becomes a diamond, right? So there's a, when things happen and landscapes, landscapes change, then good can come of it, right? True, exactly. So yeah, I, I acknowledge that I'm really lucky. I'm really grateful. I do have space. I'm not in a tiny apartment. I do have a garden. So that helps a lot. But also... Being able to work online, because I've done that for, for more than 15 years, like almost 20 years. So it was easy for me to, to jump back online. I have a big network, both in Switzerland and here. So having an import, a network is key, I think. If you have a good network, if you have friends, the day you need to make some money online, I think it's easier. It, it's better. Awesome. So before we move on, I'm going to ask you the final questions that I ask everyone at the end of uh, season seven right now, which this is going to be part of. So tell everyone what's, what's the future then for, what, what's, I don't even think we've talked about the name of your company. What's the name of your company? What's the future? What's going to happen after the, well, what's going to happen after this lockdown? Because you've just talked about how you've done a massive pivot to move online. What's going to happen when you can actually meet in person and we're, we're allowed to go outside? <laughs> Yes, so my company is called Spiced, as in Spiced Up. And, you know, I, we were based in District 1 back in the days when I took over the co-working space and had so many problem, problems with the landlord. 
as a lot of people may may know. And so I had envisioned a business model where you don't have any space, but you partner with existing co-working space and co-living spaces, and you provide them with community activities, events, and courses, coaching, and so on. So now, after two lockdowns, I realized, okay, that was not a bad idea. So I'm going to develop an online community, launching online courses, the first one in October. I'm launching a, um, a first workshop on October 5th on storytelling and how to clarify your message so customers understand what you do and pay attention to your message. So that's going to be the first course, October, and more course following up. And I'm going to have a monthly coaching session live as well for the attendees of the courses. And I want to partner with co-working spaces, not just here, but I'm already in touch in Singapore and other countries so that we can have a bit of a network for entrepreneurs. And my mission with, you know, with the, those courses is to help people make more money smarter by working less, more efficiently, having automated sales online so that they don't have to work crazy and they can have a better life. Yeah, because I read, it's a great thing to do because I read something recently, one of the the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make is they just make a job for themselves instead of making a business where they can do do less and have more free time. All they do is just even something create more work for themselves, right? True. And I, I know a lot about this. It's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard to delegate and to automate. You just like do everything yourself and then you burn out, which happened to me in the past. Yeah, for sure. All right, so we're going to move on to the final questions that I ask everyone. And then for everyone who's still listening, thank you so much. We're going to do then move into a Q&A or even just a comment section. So I'll, I'll put it back into like a gallery mode and we can see everyone. And then, yeah, please feel free to ask questions. So the first question, which is relevant to our lockdown right now, if you could get on a motorbike or on the back of a motorbike, if you don't drive one yourself and you could go anywhere right this second, where would you go? I would go straight to the beach. I need nature. I miss it. Uh, beach would be my first idea, my first destination. I could consider countryside, nature, Dalat. No, no, you can't go to Dalat on a motorbike. Well, you can, but that's a bit of a trip. I mean, like, literally, I mean, the beach Vungtau is okay. I don't mean like Dalat. Yeah. I asked this question to Tuin and she was like, yeah, I'd go to my hometown of Quang Nai. And I was like, that's like <laughs> a three-day trip. No, I just mean like you jump on, like you go downstairs, you jump on your bike. Because right now we can't do that. We can't sure. even do the simple thing of jumping on our bike. So if you could, let's even make it narrower than the beach. If you could just go jump on your bike right this second, where would you go at 8.57 at night? Maybe in my favorite restaurant. <laughs> which which is? Yeah, well, I have to think. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have too many. <laughs> sure. I, I miss that rooftop. That's yeah. a good one. I know, just a new one as well. That's a great one. Uh, all right, so... I think you've maybe already answered this, but can you maybe narrow it down to just one thing? What's been the one best thing about this lockdown for you? I think it's my cat giving birth to four kittens. Wow. Four kittens during lockdown, yeah. You frisky cat you got there then. She's been out, your cat's been going out getting more busy than you have. Uh, all right. What has been the most challenging thing about lockdown? I think it was to tune to that new rhythm and mostly exercising. So during the first part of the lockdown, we could still go out. I would go for walks. 
every night. And now I'm really missing that. So I'm trying to do stretching and exercising on, you know, every morning, but that's not as, as fun as going outside <laughs> yeah, for sure. or going to the gym. So that's my <laughs> biggest challenge. I just, I've started doing some yoga videos online. Annie, you'll be proud of me. <laughs> and it's quite funny because I just want to do like some yoga. I just want to do some stretches and She's uh, the, what was it? The comment the I do like. So I found this video that I quite like because it's quite it's just easy stretches and stuff like that. And she's like, "Okay, so today you're gonna find your authentic self." And I'm like, "I think I already am my authentic self. So who the fuck am I gonna find?" <laughs> and then today the other one was she's like, "You know, we're gonna stretch the hips. There's a lot of tension in the hips. A lot of our emotional tension is in the hips." And I'm like. I'm emotionally tense. I didn't realize, I didn't know my hips had all my emotions in there, but so that's a new one I learned today as well. I got a, a lot of emotional tension in my hips. Annie, you can make a comment about that afterwards. Annie, I can't see you right now, but you're probably like, what? You do, Annie does as a yoga instructor. That's why I'm calling Annie out. All right. What is it, what in Vietnam has shocked you the most since you've been here? I think it's staff living without notice. That was a huge shock. And especially when they tell you, oh, my grandmother passed away or my grandmother is sick and you don't even know if it's true or, you know, and you never hear from them. They just block you on Facebook. They block you on Skype. Never hear them from them. So that was a big shock. I've heard that, especially from restaurateurs, that the biggest challenge is finding good staff. And a similar thing because they will just literally disappear on you. So I think that's a common thing, which is unfortunate. And then last question, what in Vietnam has pleasantly surprised you? I think it's that entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial spirit that is in the culture. So when I first arrived here, I was like, really, wow, they, they run businesses in every houses. And even, you know, my staff that had full-time job, they would do gigs on the side and their parents would run a business from home. And, you know, they're always trying to make an extra buck. And I think there's a job for everyone here. Of course, there's a bit of unemployment, to be fair, but there's opportunities and jobs for a lot of people here. Yeah, awesome. Well, so thank you so much, Marcial. Really Thanks good to chat me. with you. You're very, very welcome. I, I'm really enjoying this format. We've done. We're definitely going to be doing this again. Then I was uh, excited to do this. So, guys, we're going to open this up now. Let me just change it to a gallery view. I've probably said heaps of controversial comments that there's people listening just ready to like tear me down. This is quite an intimidating format because normally when I do this just at home and it's just me and the guest and then the episode will go out and you're not doing it with people listening to you. And I always, I also always know whatever I say, I can edit it out. And I'm always terrified of doing a live uh, podcast. So this has been equally fun and terrifying and intimidating at the same time. But I hope everyone's enjoyed it. I hope you had a good time. I've actually really enjoyed this as well. What I'm going to do, I've just put a link in the chat box. Uh, 7 Million Bikes, we are building a community, especially here in Saigon. Um, the expat community has been decimated, as we know, uh, probably up in Da Nang and Hanoi as well. Uh, Zion here is, was the very first ever member of the 7 Million Bikes community. So thank you so much for Zion for that. You can get like a free entry to our events that we do. You've got different packages that you can choose. You get free invitation, or not free, but you get invitations to extra events that we do. You get bonus content as well. You get content where I mess up 
uh, which I don't share normally with other people as well. So you get loads of extra kind of perks and benefits. But the biggest thing we're trying to do though is build that community because we know here in Vietnam it can be difficult, especially for expats or even Vietnamese that speak English to find English entertainment. So what 7 Million Bikes is doing is providing that. But we also want to bring fun and community and laughter and bring people together. And so as we mentioned at the beginning, just seeing everyone here today, even on a Zoom call, is uh, is really amazing. So thank you so much, everyone, uh, for joining us tonight. So we're now open to questions. So raise your hand, shout out, turn your cameras on, turn your mic off, uh, and any questions, then go. Thanks for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. We hope you enjoy hearing our guest stories. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much to our producer, Lewis Wright, for making sure the show sounds as good as possible for you. And also a big thanks to the 7 Million Bikes community members and everyone who supports us. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can join the community today. The link is in the description and you'll get free event tickets, free 7 million bikes face mask and invites to special member events. Also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube and I'm still ashamed to say this, TikTok. Most of all, if you can, please donate to Saigon Children's Charity or Blue Dragons Children Foundation's COVID appeals. Remember, we have six seasons of stories to share with you, so check them out if you haven't already, and we hope you can listen to future episodes too so you can laugh, connect, and discover. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. 
As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.